0: ready
1: hi this is Steve Hargadon and Audrey Waters hi Audrey hello so a little bit of a quiet week this week
0: seemingly so a couple of huge of huge things but pretty quiet on the western front
1: i think we're going to have some fun talking about colored pills <laughs> and the kindle fire yes um Felt like a, a couple of the stories were kind of recycled from last week, and, and so we may not cover them fully. Yeah, um, you know, or or not recycled, but we're sort of additional information. Yeah. Um. But uh. So I think we'll get going, and then the the Kindle Fire will come up, and we'll have to decide how much time to take on it. Okay. Okay. So tell me what's the connection between college football and red and blue pills?
0: <laughs> well, the connection was that Saturday night I was in a hotel room in Denver. Flipping channels back and forth between the Matrix <laughs> and the Stanford University of Oregon football game, um, but but I have been thinking a lot about sort of this this particular moment that we are at that we're facing in education, where we're you know there seem to be all sorts of crises and power plays and narratives about um, what's working and not working, and it's just struck me as this moment where of. Uh, this moment of crisis, where we're going to have to make a decision um, about our future, uh, so that—that's the very loose connection between the, <laughs> between the So I am a, Stan-
1: so a Stanford grad. Is there a connection there?
0: Uh, You—you're a Stanford grad. I am. I did not know that. Well, I my master's degree is from UVO, uh, so, but I'm not a fan so, of what? I'm not a fan of football, <laughs> college football. Well, you and
1: I share that. You and I share that then as well. Yeah. That's so funny. But that's a that's a fun connection. Okay, so for me, this whole story of narratives is really interesting. I, I feel like we're seeing it play out in so many areas. And what really struck me this week is the inability to, uh, for most of us, to see other people's narratives. Um, this is especially true in sort of the Wall Street and Occupy Wall Street movements. It feels as though we just have a really hard time. Seeing another person's narrative, or or even seeing evolving narratives, and is this sort of the key? Do we need to do we need to become better at this?
0: I think. I mean, I actually, the, the, you know, Will Will Richardson wrote a really interesting response to a Wall Street Journal piece on um, that was co- that was really provocatively titled "My Teacher Is an App," and it was fascinating because Will Richardson wrote a response. Ad did um, as did investor and author uh, Tom Vander Ark. And it was fascinating to me to see these two folks approach and critique the Wall Street Journal article from totally different positions and have very different reads on uh, on the story. Both had sort of critiques of it, and it definitely feels as though we're having conversations that are not that sort of are mis like they're almost like conversational misfires. Um, and I'm not sure any of us are are sort of making our points. Uh, heard more broadly, or thinking through things critically, or recognizing the arguments that other people are making in the education space. I mean, I think that we're you know it gets so politicized and caught up in buzzwords about who gets to own the sort of the notion of reform, who gets to own sort of the the potential for uh, for tech you know the potential for technology in the classroom and what that means. But it does feel as though that that we aren't listening. Sort of in general in the education uh, industry right now, we really aren't listening to each other, or to or to students, or to or to parents, or or teachers. So,
1: well, I was intrigued by this idea that if we're kind of redefining education as learning how to learn, which is a definition I really like, um, that part of what we also need to be doing is is telling narratives about narratives. Meaning, uh, we need to be aware of this in part, not just because we're speaking past each other, but because we have to remember that sometimes people are so enmeshed in a narrative that they're not consciously trying to be the bad guy, but their whole worldview is around a certain way of thinking that they are—they just don't see the other way.
0: Well, and I think that that's when I wrote the the blue pill or the red pill story. I was thinking about—I really wasn't thinking about. College football, in terms of the Stanford Oregon game, I was really thinking about Penn State, obviously, and I think that that's a good example of that, in which the the university's identity and the narratives that that school tells about why it's a great, why Penn State has become a great uh, university, is a narrative that is intertwined with uh, intertwined with college football, intertwined with the story of you know uh, Joe Paterno, um, and. And just thinking about what that what that looked what that looked like when the scandal broke in terms of students rioting, and um, I think is was a was a sort of a, a horrific a horrific uh, example of what happens when these these other narratives go um, go on. Not un, I don't mean unchallenged in terms of um, you know criticizing college sports, but I think unchallenged in terms of not thinking through what exactly where. Um, you know, we're telling ourselves
1: yeah, for me, it, the big story here is that institutional narratives that depend on compliance mm-hmm. are breaking yes and and there's going to be pain as they break. Okay, so what is FERPA and why is it so darn old? And why <laughs> is it in the news this week?
0: <laughs> well, you know there there is a trio <laughs> there are a, tri, a trio of laws that pertain that sort of genuine gen, generally invoked, when you're talking about children and students and online activities. So COPPA, SIPA, and FERPA. And FERPA is the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, and it dates all the way back to 1974. Um, It is is an old law. And I think as our notions of privacy are changing and our notions of sharing educational um, content are changing, um, FERPA looks really out of whack and it came the it's in the news this week because uh, Georgia Tech which is actually the first school who used wikis as part of its um, part of its curriculum uh, the the school decided to actually shutter all of the wikis they invoked FERPA they said that having having a wiki was a violation of a student's right to privacy Um, and even though the school has had wikis for um, over 20 years now, um, they, they removed all the students from them. It's re- a, really a, a devastating blow to, um, to thinking about the potential, for, the potential for what the internet can do to, to teaching and learning. As someone said, uh, when I tweeted this story, they said, uh, Georgia Tech's lawyers ruin pedagogy. And so I think that's a fairly, fairly accurate assessment here, is you know the law trumped teaching and learning.
1: So, Georgia Tech is no newbie in this area. You said, I think you said 20 years, but I think you meant to say 10, because yeah. I think it was 1999. Yeah. Yeah, right. so but that's still so long. Right. To have been using wikis. I mean, they had to have been really early adopters.
0: They were the, yeah, they were early adopters. And what's fascinating about the Georgia Tech wiki system is that they, rather than creating a new wiki for each class they created wikis for the class in general so if you took so if you took intro to the intro to biology wiki has been sort of going on and on and if you took the class you could join the wiki you could stay in the wiki even after you completed the course and so and that's that's actually where the FERPA uh, apparently the FERPA violation was supposed to occur is this notion that um, that uh, students uh, you're not supposed to have access to sort of records of what classes students are in. And so by virtue of being having students in wikis is sort of available to the other student population <laughs> what other students are, are learning.
1: Right. Well, the idea was... I articulate it and okay, I the,
0: laugh. It's, it's, it's so silly.
1: Right. Well, the idea was you, you can't post the student grades... You're not supposed to know what classes other students are in, and that really came down to that right It was right. well, if somebody's in the wiki, then you know what class they're in oh well, we can't do that right. but uh, here was here was what really bothered me about this story uh, and it, and it came on the heels of an experience I had this week where I had been part of a group blog where uh, several of us had kind of carried the blog for the last two or three years doing all the posting and the organization, educational organization that had started the blog, decided to sell or transfer the blog to another organization without contacting us and actually I don't know if it was intentional, or not completely closed down the blog and deleted all the content off the wow. web. Now they've sort of backpedaled and they're helping us to get the content back online but it felt very much like maybe not a legal violation but a violation that was our content we posted it we did it in the you know under the assumption that this was a group effort and nobody even contacted in fact we had asked several times during the last 2 or 3 years when it was clear the institution didn't have any interest in the project anymore we said can we take it over and got no response, but for them then to transfer it to somebody else, it felt like a violation. And I thought in this story, all of that student content and work yeah. was wiped out. Now I understand the privacy issue, but they've—it felt to me like that was a violation of the of the um, of who had created the content.
0: Absolutely, and I and I think you know, and much like in your example, the um, it's certainly my understanding that none of the faculty at Georgia Tech sort of had word that this was coming. I mean, this is sort of like you wake up one day and log in to your wiki and it's gone. Um, this wasn't something that the faculty had um, any sort of uh, got, got to, or certainly um, it doesn't. Appears though, the faculty had any notion that this was coming down the pipe. That this was something that was discussed with them this was a legal decision that I think exactly that and I think that you know all of this you know we spend a lot of time talking about about the potential for tools like wikis and blogs to really be to provide some new and exciting opportunities for students to be able to work together share their work publicly too so that it's not just a matter of why did you write this paper well you wrote this paper so that your professor could read it and that's really the, the audience of one. This notion that students are actually learning to be um, to, op- to to learn learning to learn openly to write publicly to um, to engage with one another in the learning process is really something that's powerful and afforded by these technologies and to see FERPA invoked as a reason to shut that down I think is 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 a devastating blow to all sorts of endeavors that, that um, the educators are are um, are engaged in right now. So
1: on the surface of it, it may just be an anomaly. It could just be you know a mistaken activity. It's sort of like the Missouri Facebook law. Right. This is going to get settled and solved, and there will be cultural dialogue around it, and that's all good and well. It felt to me like the sort of the hidden danger was it was there something going on there that's actually larger and going to impact other institutions you know did did, um, was there government contact was there some kind of a legal situation that precipitated this that we don't know about yet and our hope I guess would be that no this was just a bad decision
0: yeah and I think I mean I think that that's that's the concern as well um you know and going back to the other two laws COPPA and SIPA I think that you know the the letter of the law in all of these cases um sort of Le- leads sort of, I think that, the, way, say, the way in which these laws are interpreted oftentimes is far more restrictive than I think the letter of the law actually reads. And so I think that that's also this fear, is that if schools see um, a major institution making this move and invoking FERPA, anyone who's a little bit nervous about their students pr- posting their work online in a blog or in a wiki now has sort of precedent to point to Georgia Tech and say, "Ah, oh, see, you know, their lawyers agreed that this is a you know that this is a, a dangerous or illegal act, and so we better not be supportive of these uh, of these efforts in the future."
1: Right, and so just in the same way as the Penn State issue has precipitated a lot of other organizations really looking at what's happened in their organization, and sometimes now. Bringing things to light voluntarily in order to avoid the same kind of a problem, I guess the question would be: You know, are all the higher ed institutions now looking at their um, collaborative tools in light of FERPA, and and will we see other activity because of that?
0: And I think I mean, and the other you know the other thing is that that is I think pretty um, uh, damaging about this is that if if the problem if the problem isn't is having things posted sort of publicly, this is also the sort of thing that's going to drive people into sort of walled garden approaches, right? So instead of, instead of being able to post things on a blog, which anyone can read, all of your students' content content will be restricted by course and behind, you know, in some sort of non, I mean, it it could still be online, but it's not going to be available sort of publicly or Students won't be able to collaborate across classes or throughout time, and I think that it's a it's a it's a move to private, closed, uh, walled gardens online, which again I think is counter to a lot of the movement that we've seen towards getting students to sort of uh, have their content available for the general public.
1: So the conspiracy theorists will go crazy if it turns out that some commercial. Um, oh, yes. educational <laughs> company or publisher has actually precipitated this, right? Indeed. Yeah, that was, I mean, uh, that's so far-fetched, but <laughs> it, we'll, we'll deal with that when it comes. Okay, so I'm still really wondering about this badge competition. Uh, it, maybe it's the complexity of it or in some ways the too close parallel with existing assessment, mm-hmm. but I, it's, I'm still just unsure about this whole uh, Open Badges project and especially the competition.
0: Yeah, it's been interesting to sort of watch the reactions to the um, people thinking through what does it mean to offer uh, badges rather than or in addition to perhaps traditional certification methods. Um, I think I'm I'm excited about the possibility. I think that um, look and looking through the the submissions uh, for this first round of the um, digital media and learning competitions. Um, uh, call for for badges for lifelong learning. it was really interesting to see the ones that were uh, that were uh, there was a sort of range there were a range of proposals for different kinds of badges and some seemed like uh, very much a, a, a company's brand like so you can get the uh, you can get a badge that says that you're a you know a pro at a particular piece of software which isn't exciting to me. But I think that there are ways to recognize other activities that are happening online that do seem that do seem interesting and it's a way to hold conversations about assessment that um that I think are going to be fruitful even if this project doesn't move forward uh thinking about what is it you know what really are we talking about when we give someone a piece of paper that says you know you you have been you've you've moved through these steps and we now think that you are a bachelor of arts or a master
1: of science. The story's not going to go away and you're going to have to keep convincing me of this, but I feel very much the same way I feel about uh, electronic portfolios,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that the more that people try and organize them, the less excited I get because of the, of the feeling I have that it's really important for students to be engaged in creating their own portfolios. So I see the badging system as being this sort of complex, uh, convoluted system that everybody's gonna to have to figure out and comply with that may in fact sort of hide the, the, the value of individuals asserting their own value.
0: No and I think that I think that that's actually really um, that's actually really important. And and I, I would argue that I mean I would certainly never make the trade-off between either having um, having a badge or having my own personal blog, for example. I would much rather have a blog and let my work speak for itself there than have a a, have some sort of digital um button that said i'm you know i get the i get the badge for ed tech writing um so i do think that it's important for people to sort of be able to showcase their own their own skills um and own and truly own that space um but i do still think that, that this project is is coming at a time where we're asking a lot of serious questions about what is it what is a what is a degree worth? What a, what are, um, what's, a ma- like what's a major worth? Like what is, the chem- is a chemistry major or a theater arts major sort of worth anything? Um, so I think that there are a lot of forces coming into play that are making us rethink what, um, how are we going to recognize the, the sort of new skill sets that don't have a traditional institution or traditional sort of piece of paper behind them?
1: I'm totally laughing here, and I'm gonna. We're gonna segue into your weekly roundup because <laughs> what I'm wondering is what will the difference be between the badge for the business student and the engineering student based on their <laughs> yes. study skills? Is one going to be slightly tarnished or <laughs> faded? <laughs> well, that we'll
0: that study actually that that study made me chuckle considering all of the the hoopla you hear about the problems with sort of liberal arts and humanity like the. That the humanities degree is somehow a wasted degree um, on behalf of people with multiple humanities degrees. I had to point and say, "Look, the real problem is are those business majors." When someone needs to do something about <laughs> business majors.
1: Well, and there's another story about the the value of the degree and the and the dollar amount of earnings. And I, that has to be done at the same time. Again, we're really we're quantifying yes. learning based on financial outcome. And I hate that. When a lot of us went, when a lot of us went to college, understanding that part of it was to help us become better citizens and better people, yeah. and that that's not really quantifiable.
0: I, I mean, and I, I have these, you know, I have these recollections when I taught at the University of Oregon, sort of uh, offering sort of, you know, the sort of academic counseling role that you do as a as a teacher, and and telling sort of smart. Smart students who could write well, sort of, you know, as they thought through what their what their uh, major should be, and steering people, for example, into philosophy degrees, into history degrees, uh, not at all based on sort of their their earning potential. Down, you know, with a piece of paper that says I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy, but because it was going to be an exercise in deep thinking, or or sort of um, strenuous research, or um, an opportunity to sort of write well. And I think that, the, um, that basing things on sort of this potential for whatever your future earnings are is definitely, um, definitely not, not something that I'm comfortable with in thinking about the value mm-hmm. of, of learning.
1: Well, again, there's the nar- the narrative shift, and hopefully, we're seeing we're going to see that happen. Um, okay, so I'm going to give the award for best quotes of the week to your uh, Boost STEM Education blog post.
0: <laughs> I was blown so away. You, yes,
1: you go you go to Lego's Education STEM Summit, and what do you hear?
0: Well, you know, I was. I was really shocked because I feel like I, you know, as someone who spends a lot of time, you know, talking to talking to educators and hearing the pushback among teachers and, and even sort of seeing it and students that I know, the pushback against standardized testing and the, sort of this burden of high stakes testing on teachers and students. But to actually be at a conference where I heard a CEO of a of a company speak out against standardized testing was pretty shocking to me and and now granted this was from Pitsco who definitely as a company does have sort of skin in the game if you will in because Pitsco you know Pitsco isn't selling standardized tests they're selling hands-on um sort of uh, exp- you know materials to experiment and build things with your hands but when the CEO of Pitsco who incidentally was a former shop teacher which I, I didn't realize um said that the you know pointed to the rise of standardized testing as something that leads to the decline in tech programs um and, and you know shop classes um and it, actually in laboratory experimentation in school um i i was i was it, was it actually made me very happy to hear um someone's you know someone in that position speak out against against the high, sort of high stakes testing and he you know he was really very, very critical of of the this move towards more testing, less you know, less hand, hands-on experimentation. And that was the tenor with okay, everyone my... I talked to.
1: <laughs> the four letter word that starts and ends with a T. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? And then this one this one was really stopped me when I was reading it standardized test scores aren't necessarily the symptom, they might just be the disease. I think that's from you, right? Yeah, that is me. Yeah. Yeah, I got to tell you, I'm going to be quoting that somewhere, I'm pretty sure. Um, And then, we haven't ever talked about this, but uh, you've led me to believe that we may actually agree uh, in another area. Uh, You said it's about convincing parents to let go of their hand-wringing and accept play back into their children's lives. Right. Boy, we could spend some time on that at some point.
0: Well, that was the interesting thing. You know, there were, um, Lego assembled several uh, education technology bloggers, and we held a little uh, round table before the day started, and it was um, Dave Banks, who writes for uh, Wired's Geek Dad. Now, um, I can't remember the names. Ben Ben Rimes, who has a blog called Tech Savvy Tech Savvy Educator, and, um, gosh, someone who writes for Edgetopia and myself, and, and listening to listening to educators and parents talk about the pressures on the pressures on their students or excuse me pressures on students and children um and the pressure from other parents on teachers to sort of not do sort of like if you're playing with legos in the classroom you why aren't you why aren't you preparing my children better for standardized testing and to me that to that's a that's a sad piece too that, that that you know that we would have parents actually be advocates for more testing in the classroom rather than recognizing how, you know the things that the things that uh, you can do with Legos even just a very simple Lego set are um, astounding in terms of thinking about problem solving thinking about math thinking about engineering um, thinking about creativity and and why we would ever want to squelch that in terms of a skilled um, multiple choice uh, form filler outer is beyond me.
1: So, we had a really brilliant session in this week's Global Education Conference from Jarmo Vitelli, who's uh, in Finland and runs the Finnish EdTech Conference. And, um, you know, of course, uh, really no standardized testing until the very end of your schooling there, which is in and of itself lots to think about. Um, but also, uh, he, he he gave us the statistic, the statistic that I did not know, that uh, in terms of a, they have a, teachers, in one of those tests, the teachers uh, measure the amount of time they have to spend getting their kids to be quiet in class. Mm-hmm. And Finland scores very poorly on this, right? So he was sort of using this as an example of Finland's not always in the best in the highest category. But as the discussion ensued, we kind of agreed that maybe a part of the reason they have trouble getting students to be quiet in class is because they're so engaged. <laughs> yes. And that this is a part of that sort of compliance narrative that we expect quiet obedience. Right. When in fact, you know, a country that's doing very, very well, the kids are actively engaged and so engaged that sometimes it's hard for the teacher to bring them back quietly.
0: That's that's actually really interesting. I mean, and I think that that's you know that's part of the fear. This this, this sort of new fear, I think, of of stepping away from the sort of this, the high stakes testing model um, and encouraging uh, encouraging more play and experimentation and hands on uh, learning uh, opportunities in the classroom. It's a it it is uh, wild and messy. And that's not necessarily um, a behavior, you know, that's not necessarily sort of behavior or, or disruptive behavior. That's actually a, a productive thing. But I think that all of these things that are getting us, getting students trained to be um, silent, heads down, pencil scribbling workers, is probably that that's not necessarily the sort of uh, space that's going to have people become uh creators, makers, and builders, and thinkers.
1: I'm thinking of the pictures I've seen of the inside of Zappos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think that's a quiet, compliant culture, do you?
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Okay. So my favorite story, the Kindle fire. Yeah. Europe, inside a high red blog post. Um, okay. So personally, I get all of the drawbacks. Right. And we'll dive a little bit deeply here. But it seems to me that the price point and the book content are providing Amazon with a huge opportunity, especially in K-12, and I don't see them taking advantage of it. It's like, oh, they're so close, and it's not happening.
0: I was, you know, when the Kindle Fire was announced, I, I mean, I'm always really really reluctant to sort of label any new device particularly to cite unseen as like revolutionary this changes everything and there were a couple of stories when the after uh, amazon announced their tablet that said just that, that the, the price point is going to be so great that schools are not going to be able to say no and the kindle fire will sort of be the new one-to-one learning device and i'm skeptical of that for a lot of reasons but when i actually held the device in my hand and i Immediately went to the app store and saw that there were no educational apps, and um, there's all for all of the reasons that we've talked about before why students are reluctant to use uh, digital textbooks. That those problems are like compounded a thousandfold. Oh, that's sort of exaggerating, but they're compounded like threefold. Um, on the, well, especially uh, for higher
1: ed, they right?
0: Are. Right. That I just thought, wow, what a missed opportunity what an actual, really a missed opportunity for Amazon which I understand is making a consumer play here, and I, I think that the, that the Kindle Fire will probably be pretty successful. Um, but I was actually sort of surprised to see that they weren't even sort of trying to, not even trying to make this into an educational device.
1: Interestingly for me, because I received one as well, and I went to the guy, the UPS guy who delivered it and said, how many of these have you delivered today? And he didn't even know what it was. And I thought, well, that... That's anecdotal, but he's not delivering a dozen mm-hmm. in our neighborhood. Um, but interestingly for me, by it being more than a Kindle, it almost felt like less. Yes. So let me describe that. I think this is. I think the packaging was brilliant. It's minimalist. It's it's a it's an you know it's a, an integrated system. Um, you know, I love my Google Android tablet because it's so tightly integrated with Google. And if I weren't so tightly integrated with Google, I would probably love the Kindle Fire even more because. It's so tightly integrated with Amazon, but it obviously doesn't have the wow factor right. like the iPad. You're, this is not going. Kids are not going to say, "Wow, I got to see your your Kindle Fire." But it does seem like if they would focus on the book aspect, right, and if they would focus on the ability to have lots of public domain content and just make it a really good device, this is a device I'm I would be very comfortable buying for my child. It feels very safe. It's not the wild, wild west. They're not going to download all kinds of stuff. What's bad for me, you know, the app store that's that's tied to Amazon, as a parent, is actually really good. So I would be really ready to buy this for my kid, but I want them to focus on the books for education.
0: hmm Yeah. I was – I mean I thought that um, – you know – Earlier this fall, I got rid of I got rid of my iPad because really all I was using it for was really as a very like a, you know a six hundred dollar Kindle, and I thought I'm just gonna wait. I'm gonna get i am I'm gonna get a Kindle. Um, and sort of my first uh, you know my first sort of days experience with it, I really wish I'd actually just bought a Kindle um, because I don't actually feel as though there's anything with the Kindle Fire that is gonna make me. Um, that makes me excited about uh, excited about the device, and I say this as you know I, I mean admittedly i'm an amazon customer i buy my I buy my ebooks there I do buy my music there um, but it's it just felt it felt really lacking in terms of even the even the potential as a reading device, and particularly when you think of of this of a reading device for educational content this sc- it's a smaller size screen. So I can't imagine how we're going to translate sort of the uh, textbook content to that smaller screen. That's
1: well for me. It wasn't about textbooks, you know, and I and I read on my phone, and I'm very comfortable with the small size of my phone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But but I'm thinking, Amazon, hire me! Come on, <laughs> l- l- let's let's run with this. This <laughs> is, I mean, this could be so huge—a a $200 device that you could have. 300 books on it and you right. don't have to buy Shakespeare's collection. And you have, I mean, all of the great books, I mean, just a delightful opportunity, but it felt to me like they missed it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the UI, oh. like the UI is weird. The, the sort of the landing, the opening screen, it's sort of got a bookshelf, but yet then it's sort of your recently opened apps and the when it doesn't render web pages very well, It actually renders web pages is as, as a um, in the in their format that they would if you looked at them on your phone, for example. So you've got a little bit bigger screen, but it's not quite big enough to enjoy a a, a website. So you're it's it's very, it's a very strange d- device. I'm I'm at first I was thinking that a lot of the tech reviewers were just being overly critical. Tech reviewers, which is something I think we like we like to do, <laughs> but um, having played around with it, I, I am I am pretty disappointed, and I think you're right that this is a missed opportunity for Amazon to really put a put sort of put a stake in the ground for being the distributor of all sorts of content, book content, media content, um, and this educational market for for precisely that is only going to grow.
1: This is the first. Iteration. I mean, there's we got we you know I'm going to give them props for what I felt was a, a uh, you know pretty good unified experience. You know, if I wasn't such a Google nut, you know, or those of you who are, who are you know those who are Apple nuts. I mean, you know, for somebody who's not highly technical and who likes Amazon Books, it's a nice unified experience. Uh, but I will say the browser was a huge disappointment to me. After all their talk about the browser. There's so much screen space that's wasted yeah. from the header and the footer. You can barely see the website in landscape. And I thought, the, uh, you know, I, w- I would not use this for browsing the web.
0: Well, that, that you know, I was, um, last weekend, I went and visited my dad who just purchased his, an iPad. And he, my dad is not at all a technical person, um, but there, but Putting an iPad in his hands was incredible. I mean, he feels so empowered now to sort of do things that he never would have done with a regular desktop computer. Um, and I actually don't know if I could have handed him the Kindle Fire and and that he would have navigated it with the same sort of with the same ease of use. I'm not sure if it's actually that easy of a device to handle. And I say this, of course, totally implicated. I mean, I have played with an iPad and I uh, and I am. Um, you know, I mean, my standards are pretty high, but there's something about an iPad that is incredibly simple for, you know, for toddlers through, you know, through, you know, the elderly to use. And I just don't know if the, if the Kindle Fire is actually that, it doesn't seem that intuitive. Like, I, I, sort of, I sort of struggle to find, like, where are my apps, what's on the device, what's in the cloud, where do I find, um, you know, where do I find my, the email app? What just wasn't right.
1: obvious to me. And I don't think they're really, they're, they're not really focused on that. I think they're focused on their content being yes. in a single unified place. Um, I'll say for me, another sort of major flaw in this version is that even though Audible is brilliantly a part of this, and I'm an Audible user, uh, what, the, the, what the Audible shows is the limitations on the video.
0: Yes. I, you
1: know, I watch video through Amazon. I really like it. I have a Roku device and I watch it. And I'll watch it on the Kindle Fire. But the fact that you have to be hooked up to wireless to do so yeah. means that you can't download a movie and watch it when you're in a car or on an airplane. Right. And, uh, and that's what Audible does so brilliantly. So it was almost like the, the use of Audible on the device showed me how weak the video was for me at this stage.
0: Yeah, that was another one of the things that I was thinking about as well. And actually, in in Amazon's defense, I think this is something that a lot this move now to streaming technology, which is everyone sort of is getting on board with the streaming and the subscription model. I mean, I just recently updated to uh, Apple's new uh, iTunes Match to sort of stream content from your device, and I had that realization now too, which is. Oh, when I'm like, if it's not, if I don't actually have my favorite songs on my iPhone, when I'm on an airplane, I have no music. I have no music to listen to, and so I think that I think that this is this, this sort of rush to excitement with streaming content. We until we have sort of ubiquitous Wi-Fi, it's actually not that awesome.
1: So I'm gonna I'm gonna use this to segue to where I think Google hit a home run this week. All right. Because we've we've bashed Google a little, <laughs> but the but it was it's actually with Google Music, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you've played with it yet, but it's a you know cloud-based service that lets you upload your music, and then it can be streamed from any device. But it also lets you download that content to the device. You can download your playlists. You know, if you update uh, a song and add it to a playlist on your phone, it's updated in the cloud, so every device sees that playlist, and you can actually say, I want to have access to this playlist. On my phone so it will automatically download and I think they have done a brilliant job and we've talked about the difference between sort of Google and Facebook and Apple mm-hmm. right in terms of uh, social understanding social and also understanding the integrated user experience and I was intrigued to see a place where I thought Google did a really good job of um, integrating, to bringing both together a really good user experience with the social piece, because because Google Plus is integrated, um, in a way that I felt like you know kind of redeemed Google a little on my eyes.
0: Oh, that's good. I actually haven't had a chance to play around with uh, with the Google Music yet, but I do think that you know this this echoes their some of the things I think that Google learned with the Chromebook, which was their you know web based um, operating system. Is that if we're going to have a, you know if we're going to have something that is relies on If you're going to rely on a system that is web-based, you have to have the infrastructure in place to support offline usage. And I think that that was something, an early snafu with the Chromebooks was that they're great right up until you have no uh, internet connection. And so hopefully I think Google's been thinking about, in a lot of ways, and they've started offering sort of offline Gmail, offline Google Docs, that as much of our world is, you know, sort of using Google tools, we actually have to be able to... Access them, so not in their full functionality, but in some functionality when we don't have an internet connection.
1: I'll be interested to see what you think of Google, Google Music. As an Amazon Music purchaser, mm-hmm. you're probably going to love it because you can directly upload your music right to, you know, to to Google Google's cloud. Um, and I think they, I think exactly as you said, I think they've done a really nice job here. And and I needed to give them some props having been so critical. <laughs> okay, so so we're into the weekly roundup. Yes. What is the children's app manifesto?
0: Well, this is this is a really interesting um, thing that, um, that I think is something that I, when I talk to a lot of education technology startups, a lot of them are sort of really trying to think through their business model, which is sort of how can we, you know, how can we make our product affordable, um, but how can we maintain? A high-quality educational content and I think that particularly when you have a team that is full of uh, researchers, uh, full of uh, R&D specialists, people who are doing really innovative things, giving it away for free that's not sustainable and this this model in which you know all apps sort of approach are approaching 99 cents um, that's not really sustainable either. You have to sell a lot of apps at 99 cents to be able to support you know a a, even a small development shop with you know five five employees and so um andy russell who's the co-founder of launchpad toys um and who gets the distinction of being the only education uh technology company i've spoken with that um was able to hold a smart conversation about seamer paper so just he gets kudos for that but um and Daniel Donahue, who's a researcher and writes for uh, Wired's Geek Dad, they wrote an app, uh, the Children's App Manifesto, which is really a call for for educators and parents and, you know, app developers and marketers and investors to think critically about how are we going to make sure that we are p- making this content um, high quality, and that the companies that are making high quality content can be sustainable. Um, and I think it's actually a it's a really important thing to think through and um, especially when we think about some of the large players in the game who can make apps and get away with selling them for free or 99 cents because they have this whole other branding um, mechanism behind them and there's a lot of there's a lot of great content, but there's also a lot of really sort of exploitative content for kids. And I think that I really liked that it was a very this is a very thoughtful manifesto on how can we make sure that kids kids aren't being exploited and parents can actually afford to buy a one dollar app and check it out and see if it's useful or not useful or enjoyable or not enjoyable, um, and that you know, but folks can still sort of earn a living building great content for kids.
1: Good. Thanks for pointing that out. Okay, so now uh, Microsoft's Live at Edu platform with 22 million users. What does this platform actually do?
0: (laughs) So this is this is um, this is this is this is marketing spin. This is Microsoft has sort of to the cloud. I believe, as Steve Ballmer uh, said a couple of years ago, this is their cloud-based hosted email and collaboration suite. So it's their office, Microsoft Office in the cloud. This is the, this is the service that they're offering uh, K-12 schools and universities. Um, it's the Microsoft equivalent in some respects to Google Apps for Education. And the two, those two companies, Google and Microsoft, they like to trade press releases where one will say, I mean just today Google said, I believe, um, University of California at Santa Cruz uh, went Google, and then you'll hear a press release from Microsoft saying, "Oh, you know X, Y, or Z." The you know the Portland uh, public school system went Microsoft, um, and so Microsoft released their pro- press statement this week that they have 22 million users, which makes them the largest, um, the the largest sort of cloud-based educational platform in the world. So,
1: so is calling it an educational platform. Uh, is there something I'm missing here? And I guess I guess Google apps for education, I kind of accept that because there, there's a strong collaborative component to it. Mm-hmm. But it feels to me like this is just the productivity suite, right? It, or is there more? Am I missing that there's more?
0: I think that they are, I mean, I think that they are really struggling to catch up with Google in terms of thinking through collaboration. I don't think, I mean, I don't think the, I don't think that Microsoft is sort of of that ilk, if you will, um, they they have added some collaboration features. I mean, you can sort of share docs documents, um, but it's it's definitely not the same sort of. It's definitely not the same. What would you even call it? Sort of, um, it's definitely not the same sort of uh, collaborative um, projects like sites or or even the, even the way in which Google Docs is, allows for you know multiple simultaneous editing. It's it's not the same, and you know I think. That in some ways this is a bit of a red herring because when Microsoft says they have 22 million users of its cloud-based platform I mean many schools have long used Microsoft Exchange and or host or excuse me have hosted things locally have used Microsoft locally so I mean it's I think for them to sort of move to the cloud is it's not as though folks have sort of suddenly made the switch to Microsoft these are long-standing Microsoft customers who have just, opted for a cloud-based rather than a locally run solution.
1: Interesting. Okay, so speaking of dubious badges, <laughs> I'm the co- I'm the co-sponsor of the Edgebug Awards. So, <laughs> so nominations are now open. Now the reason I say that is because the voting system here is is imprecise and in fact in many ways it's a popularity contest and I know because some of my efforts have won several awards. So part of the fun of the Edge of Blog Awards is just becoming aware of all the people doing good things. Yes, and it should be recognized that the award winners are not necessarily. Mean, you know, this is not a scientific process. There is voting involved, but it's just a really fun event, and it's a great way to showcase the good work lots of people are doing, and and hopefully nobody walks away feeling badly if they didn't win.
0: No, I think but that that's again, actually. So- that that's actually one of the things I love most about the Edublog Awards is it's an like, opportunity to sort of find new blogs that just for for whatever reason haven't been on my radar before. And I think that you know some we do see some names who win every year and almost you know I mean in some ways rightly so. I think I think of the work that Richard Byrne does for example in uh, free technology for teachers. I mean that's he that's a really great a really great website with a ton of resources. But it's also that the awards are also an opportunity to sort of find new blogs that that you've not ever heard about before that get nominated. And so I love I love sort of clicking through and, and finding all sorts of um, exciting work that folks are doing that just hasn't for whatever reason I haven't I haven't found before.
1: Good. Well we we love it. And so the award the nominations are now open. Okay, so in another shocking story. It turns out that Rate My Professors <laughs> ratings are actually somewhat accurate. This I'm, one, I'm stunned.
0: I, 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 this one is funny. I mean, I, I, I'm not a fan of having, um, having sort of – was teaching at the time when RateMyProfessors.com sort of came into uh, existence. I, I always found it to be um, awful. Uh, but then again, the whole sort of student evaluation process is also – Sort of awful, and so. But the research this week found that that actually the the sort of the, the sort of comments that students uh, leave on RateMyProfessors.com actually is pretty close to the sorts of things that they write and and leave in their sort of pen, pen pencil and paper formal evaluations. So, I mean, make so it, make that what you will.
1: So they're accurate in the same way that uh, those evaluations are reflective of the student's perceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that when I look at reviews of a restaurant, yes, I not only am evaluating the restaurant, but I have to evaluate the individual reviews. Yes. Because I know that they're written by people of uh, widely diverging uh Capabilities.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I think that this was always the sense with that people some people had with, with Rate My Professors. And honestly, the same can be said about any sort of, you know, student evaluation as well. That it tends to be the students who either completely loved you and thought that you were the greatest, you know, the greatest teacher that they've ever had and that you should make a lot of money, which was my favorite student evaluation that I ever got, was that Audrey someone should make sure Audrey makes a lot of money. Um, which I saved as a graduate student, making, you know, living below that poverty line, but um, but our students were motivated by a great love or an absolute hatred of you, um, and so in some ways they weren't really representative of whether or not a teacher was um, sort of a, a good teacher or that folks folks enjoyed their material. So, but I think that students students feel like leaving those comments on their you know on their formal evaluations as well.
1: Yeah, and as a public, we're becoming better at understanding how to manage that kind of public information, mm-hmm. whether it's a, a re- Amazon or a restaurant review or a review of a professor. Yeah. Okay, so I, I want to kind of end with a little bit of a gripe. Okay. Um, so, uh, and it's not related to you, but so this past week we ran the Global Education Conference, and for the last two years, we have run what is really a – an innovative sort of stunning event, uh, worldwide event, virtual and, f- uh, for, th- for thousands of educators around the world to come and share their practices specifically on global education. And for the last two years, we've contacted the State Department because they run something at this time called the International Education Week. And we get literally no real play or feedback or promotion. And, and I'm intrigued by the degree to which a, a grassroots, really authentic, innovative activity like this that completely matches. In fact, we we pick the dates to match with International Education Week because it's such a great match that that uh, we don't get really kind of any recognition. And it was a reminder to me again of sort of how far it feels that some of these educational, government educational um, activities are how far removed they are from the actual authentic work. That's my rant.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, and I think that that's one of the things that strikes me, you know, even looking at some of the, sort of the, the announcements and news this week out of out of D.C., um, the things that, and I don't know if, if folks tuned into Arnie Duncan's, uh, had his Twitter town hall, and it just, it just always sort of strikes me as, um, a lot of educators, particularly sort of the, on the leading edge of, of technology adoption, we are so far ahead of ha- and having such sort of nuanced and smart conversations while um, I'm just not sure that the Department of Education is even prepared to to, you know, to to handle this at all, which is a shame.
1: Well, we had a blast. Anyway, the plug will be all of the recordings are up online at globaleducationconference.com. And it was a terrific event. And Audrey, again, uh, another really fun week of news. Always delightful to talk to you. Likewise. Take care, everybody. Have a great week.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye.